Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, as well as equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm Spiritual Engagement Coordinator for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is J. Ross Wagner. Ross is a professor of Bible at Duke Divinity School in North Carolina and an old friend and teacher of mine uh, who I've gotten to study the book of Hebrews with off and on over the years, but especially back when I was in grad school. Uh, we were in New Jersey together uh, back then. And uh, he's a, a scholar of Hebrews, of Paul's letters, and of the New Testament in general, especially in terms of its Jewish background and with a focus on the way that the New Testament interprets the scriptures of the Old Testament. So he's got uh, lots of publications out there and uh, things that you can see. Just search them on Amazon and you'll find what he's got out there. Great scholar and great heart for the church and for ministers and for people. So was really excited to get to have uh, Ross on this show. Um, our text is Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. I think it's our third passage in a, a short little seven-week series on Hebrews uh, here this fall. So make sure to subscribe if you're not already so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice and pass this show on to others so they may benefit as well. And lastly, if you'd like to support the show as well as receive some additional content, simply go to patreon.com slash fresh text to become one of our patron saints. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Ross. All right, so would you be willing to read the passage, uh, any translation of your choice, and uh, we'll jump from off from there. Well, let's go with the old Revised Standard Version this time. Hebrews 5, 1-10. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is bound to offer sacrifice for his own sins, as well as for those of the people. And one does not take the honor upon himself, but he is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. As he says also in another place, Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard for his godly fear. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word uh, spoken throughout the ages and spoken fully in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask that the word that he spoke and that he was and is uh, would be continually living and active among us, and that as we study 
these written words about your son, that uh, Ross and I would be equipped by your spirit to bear the word well, uh, to bear it faithfully, and to bear it fruitfully. And that the same would be so for all those listening in, whether listening for their own edification or uh, preparing something to teach or preach to others. Lord, make us into bearers of your word, able to bear witness to your son, Jesus Christ, who is your son and is our priest forever. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So yeah, we follow a kind of simple standard observation, interpretation, application kind of rhythm. So let's just start out with observing. What, what's interesting here that you'd like to point out? What strikes you today fresh as we read this text? Yeah. I really love the commentary by Harry Attridge on Hebrews and uh, continue to assign it to my classes. So there are many different ways to outline the letter, but I, I'm still convinced that Attridge's uh, take on the structure of the argument is illuminating. So he points out that at the end of chapter two, we're um, introduced to the idea of Jesus as our high priest. And this is right after the section that where the author talks about how Jesus has come to share blood and flesh with God's many sons and daughters. And so in verse 17, it says, Therefore he had to be make, made like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make expiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself has suffered and been tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. And um, Hattridge says that the preacher first looks at the faithfulness of Jesus in chapters 3 and 4, comparing him to the faithful Moses. But um, there's a turn here then, just a few verses before our passage, where the attention shifts to Jesus as the merciful high priest, and the one who's able to help us in temptation. So um, Hebrews 4.14 tells us, since we have this priest to hold fast to our confession, and then given the fact that he uh, can sympathize with our weakness and has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, he's able to help us, so we should draw near with confidence. And I think this hold fast and draw near then is the exhortation that the next verses are trying to, to strengthen. Why do we draw near to Jesus? Why do we hold fast to our confession of hope in him? Well, it's because he's, he's the perfect great high priest that we need. And the notion of high priest it seems to be new to the audience of this sermon. It gets a lot of explanation. It's going to take us all the way into chapter 10. To, uh, to unfold exactly what it means. So this is just the beginning of that. And here in chapter 5, um, we're introduced to the qualifications of a high priest and how Jesus meets and actually exceeds those qualifications. Yeah, that's great. So yeah, I mean, the more natural place to have started this passage would be 4.14 in a way. Yeah, you asked before we recorded uh, if, if, if Ken has been on, and, and we did uh, 4.11 through 16, which okay. was kind of an awkward kind of the end, the kind of final punch from the rest yeah. sequence of three and four, and then the kind of beginning, which was almost perfect because then kind of Ken and I like just basically talked about the whole book Hebrews. <laughs> but uh, so that was the episode just before this. Uh, we had Amy on for, for the first week t uh, to do chapter one oh, and a little great. bit of two to kind of set that up. So yeah, but this, I, I had forgotten that or never knew it, one or the other. 
um, that's the scholar thing. Say, oh, I'd forgotten as yeah, if to right, imply. Right, oh, right. of course <laughs> I'd read that a long time ago. But uh, the faithful and merciful as kind of a, a shorthand for those first couple chapters yeah. and then the merciful that extends. And you mentioned that this is a new concept to his hearers. And so what, what's your – I mean we don't have to camp on this, yeah. but what's your general take on – the most likely audience of this right. so-called epistle to the Hebrews. I mean, yeah. um, cause you could take it to say they must know a lot about this Hebrew stuff or they wouldn't follow it. But the other argument is he has to explain it cause they, they don't know it. Right. And, yeah. and then everything I, in between, I'm just curious, what's your, what's your take on that lately? It's an ongoing question for good reason. There just isn't a whole lot of evidence for us to, to grab onto. So we all, come to the letter trying to imagine the preacher trying to imagine the people that he's talking to and i find myself increasingly um yeah i was gonna say increasingly confused that's that's probably right but increasingly attracted to the idea that this is a community that is although it's related in i think the author has connections with pauline circles the jew gentile issue is not a, a hot burning issue for them and that could be because it's pretty much completely Gentile background audience, or it could be that it's primarily Jewish Christian. I think it's hard to tell. I think it's kind of interesting that it doesn't actually matter if it's Jews or Gentiles. They're Christ followers who deeply know the scriptures and inhabit the scriptures. So I, I, I think that when I say that, that the idea of Jesus as high priest is somewhat new to them, I would just say that that seems to account for why so much attention is given to the topic from chapters 5 to 10. The idea that Jesus is exalted above the angels or that he shared flesh and blood and that his death is salvific, those seem to be things the the author expects the audience already knows and, and believes. So holding fast to our confession, there's a lot of common ground, but it's it's going to be particularly this notion of Jesus as priest that I think is the creative sort of new contribution that is going to help the congregation hold fast and encourage them to draw near even while they're under pressure. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. It's like the, it's probably not a mixed congregation in terms of Jew and Gentile, or at least if it is, if it's mixed, it's not a burning issue is what I, maybe you're saying. Yeah. I should, I should put it that way. That'd be clearer because yeah, it just if, it doesn't seem to be being addressed the way it if is. If it's and, mixed, the Gentiles are, are being socialized to understand themselves as part of God's people. Got it. So you, okay. When this gets read later by a church that has very few believers in Christ from a Jewish background, it, it can sound like this is a an overturning or a replacement of Israel. But throughout the letter, every everything that is better has to do with Christ and Christ's ministry. When it comes to the people of God, the audience is in the same place as the patriarchs of the oh, woman's generation. So that's a good parallel. Such so a deep continuity, yeah. So the supremacy of Christ versus what came before is there, but the supremacy of the current people is not even like a question. Of course not. We're just, this is one, <laughs> one people of God throughout yeah, time in history. That's, right. that's good. That's, that's right. helpful. That's a helpful counterweight to the way the book can be misread so easily. Well, that's helpful. I mean, obviously we're at the end of the day, we can only speculate, but a little bit of speculation is helpful, at least as it relates to patterns in the text. I mean, it's internal evidence. He spends a lot of time. So if I heard you right at the beginning, it's that 
concept of a priest is probably not terribly foreign to them, but it's specifically Jesus holding that office is kind of a new idea, or if it's ever been heard, it hasn't been exposited. And would you say that's relatively unique to Hebrews? I mean, the the hints of it are pretty thin elsewhere in the New Testament canon. Is that fair to say? That's my impression, is that this is really a kind of standout, creative bit of early Christology. And the the author seems to be aware even, I mean, in the immediate next section, I know I'm going out of our boundaries, but he's kind of saying the milk and the moving on. He's almost kind of like, yeah, yeah, I know this is kind of next level stuff. So he's implying that this priestly stuff's not the kind of basic stuff that everybody knows. It's kind of peering into something deeper. Um, So he's not maybe entirely unaware of the newness of the insight, I suppose. I don't know if you'd agree with that. No, I I think that's right. My class was discussing this next passage you're talking about, uh, 511 into chapter six. Just wondering about the rhetorical strategy. You know, I have some difficult things to teach you. They're hard to explain. And I'm worried that y'all are just dumb. Um, so he, you know, he's, be, you, you ought to be teachers by now, but you still need somebody to teach you the basics. And I think it's a kind of, it's a kind of ironic inversion of that move that orders, you know, compliment the audience in order to make them right. pay attention. Here, it's a kind of some cold water in the face to say, hey, wake up. This is going to be difficult, but it's really important. And this is no time to sit back and be lazy thinkers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, let's, let's dig into some of the meat of, of this text, having set the, set the context. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Jay Ross Wagner, and we're looking at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Let me just uh, read it again, mm-hmm. just so it's fresh in our ears and for the ears of our listeners. Uh, so, for every high priest chosen from among human beings is appointed to act on behalf of human beings in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for the sake of sins. Now that one can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for the people. And no one takes this honor for themselves, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also the Messiah did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by the one who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to rescue him from death. And he was heard on account of fear. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, 
being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. All right. So I don't know. I kind of want to talk about these Psalms with you, mostly because yeah, you're, right. you're the one who taught me how to read. I took class with you, Old Testament in the New, years ago, which was awesome. And so this is, I mean, this is such a crucial turning point in the book, I think, right? You get this quote from Psalm 2 yeah. that was important earlier in the book. And then this, and then this quote from Psalm 110, I think the, I think 110.1 has already been right, quoted. Chapter one. Yeah. But 110.4 is now quoted, I think for the first time. Whereas Psalm, the Psalm 2 quote is, I think the, yeah, that's the very first citation back in chapter one. So clearly this is kind of a hinge of kind of these two texts from Psalms being put next to each other. So help us to kind of understand a little of that's the significance of what he's doing here with his reading of the Psalms. And Yeah. Um, and both of these Psalms are taken by the earliest Christians as prophecies. So David, we, often, we think about David as the, the sweet singer of Israel um, and poet, but in second temple Judaism, he's understood to be a prophet as well. And, um, so you find this in Acts or in Paul's letters here in Hebrews. And, um, you know, the, the logic of reading some of these psalms, like Psalm 2 uh, or Psalm 110, about D- David's heir has to do with the, with the difficulty of reading the historical David as the addressee. So, for example, the speaker of the psalms is referring to his Lord and the Lord. And so Jesus in his confrontation with his uh, opponents the week before his passion, you know, says, how, how is it that David calls this one Lord if it's David's son? And um, the logic of Peter's Pentecost sermon is um, Psalm 16 speaks about, you know, God, you won't let your Holy One see corruption. Well, David's grave is here. So he must have been speaking ahead of time about, um, and the key, the key text uh Behind this, in a lot of this thinking, is God's promise to David in Second Samuel seven: "I will set one of your descendants on your throne forever." So, a psalm that might have been composed by David or about David is seen, by extension, to to find its 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 true and final fulfillment in David's heir, um, Jesus, the one who is crucified and raised by God and exalted to God's right hand. So, as you said. Um, that God calls this one my son is established on the basis of Scripture. Psalm 2 and Second Samuel 7 are both quoted in Hebrews 1. That the son has been exalted to God's right hand is buttressed by a quotation of Psalm 110.1. So far, Hebrews, uh, the author of Hebrews and other early Christians are, are in step with one another. The unique thing uh, that Hebrews offers is that he keeps reading Psalm 110, and finds that God says not only sit at my right hand, but you are a priest forever. And it's this designation of the Lord as priest that's the focus of interest in what follows. And specifically, what is it to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek? And I think it's not accidental that he's quoted Psalm 2 here again to remind us that the one who's being called priest is the one who from eternity past and forever and ever will will be is this the one that God the Father calls son. Yeah, that's so good. So so like you said, Psalm one ten, 
is explicitly quoted in all kinds of places all over the New Testament. And it's implied or alluded to, echo, whatever, mm-hmm. at almost every reference to him at God's right hand, which is right. all throughout, including Paul's letters. So even when he's not citing 110, you feel that reverberation of 110. But yeah, so, I mean, we can't get in, we can't get in the author to the Hebrew's head, but, you know, just for funsies. I mean, you said he keeps reading. I mean, do you have a hunch, just understanding how ancient Jews at the time read scripture. I mean, would that have perhaps even been the jumping off point? Again, we can't get in their head, but of this kind of discovery, it's kind of like, well, we, we love Psalm 110 and maybe they just had the whole Psalm in mind or were reading it one day. And I mean, is, is there some, are, is there, are there clues in the text that in many ways, like that contextual closeness in the, in 110, one to four is like, in some ways, what's kind of inspiring this idea? Or is the priestly idea kind of motivated elsewhere and this is a helpful kind of hook for it? You catch what I'm asking? Or yeah, is it a, maybe it's yeah. a maybe it's a not a good question? Well, no, it's, you said we're speculating. But yeah, yeah. It, I would guess that it was coming to this psalm, understanding that it's about Jesus. This is the, the author in chapter two. I keep saying author. He's a, he's a preacher. But the preacher says, you know, we heard the good news that began to be preached by Jesus, and then we heard it from those who, who heard him. So he's in the second generation. Um, so he's probably learned, yeah, Psalm 110, sit at my right hand. That's, that's what God has now done in exalting Jesus. I like to think that he's, he's kept reading the psalm and said, well, then he must be a priest also. Like, what's that mean? And this sets off a, a kind of search through the scriptures to say, wow, priest, priest according to Melchizedek. Like, how, how would we think about that? There's certainly sacrificial language used in the Gospels and Paul's writings with respect to Jesus' death. But I don't think anybody has gone as far as, as this preacher to develop, well, what, what does it mean that Jesus is a sacrifice? What is he sacrificed? Where? And all this really cool stuff's going to get developed as we as we keep hearing the sermon. You know that Jesus is exalted to right God's right hand, but he's exalted as a, as a priest who who brings the offer of, offering of himself right into God's presence. He's not simply king; he's also priest, and he's not simply king and priest. He's he's God's beloved son, and not only that, our brother, so that we are God's beloved sons and daughters, and. And in fact, his priestly ministry is making a way for us to follow behind him. So there's a there's it's a it's a really creative and 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 vibrant combination of images, I think. But yeah, I guess I'd like to think it, it has its root in meditating on the scriptures. Of course, in light of what God has done, you're back to chapter two. God's testified alongside the words of the apostles with signs and wonders and distributions of the Holy Spirit. I mean, this preacher and his audience are living in a community that knows and loves Jesus. And they, when they gather, Jesus is present with them and the Spirit's working. But to read the scriptures in that kind of a setting allows them to, to come to life and, and teach new things about who Christ is. Oh, that's a helpful corrective, especially my probably my modernist tendency to be like, okay, so where's this idea coming from? Where, how did it develop? You know, and that's mm-hmm. fine. But that more fundamental framework of this encounter with Christ, the, I mean, it, you could say that he and his community were experiencing, if that's the right verb, experiencing the 
priestly ministry of Christ before they had a concept of it, right? (laughs) And so, because it was happening when they gathered to worship, they were drawing near through his priestly ministry. They just maybe didn't have a concept filled out, and he's Mm -hmm. offering that. That would be maybe one way to probably just say what you just said in my own way, which is my habit. But (laughs) helpful. I I, I find myself often talking about how um, the earliest followers of Jesus read the scriptures and can reread them, and Christ provides the key to understanding what they're about. But it's just as true that it's the scriptures that give them the language to to articulate, to understand even what God is up to. So these deeply scriptural ideas of of priest, of sacrifice, of of atonement, even of of what sonship means or, or what a king is to be, all of these are content that helps them to think about Christ as well. So they're not um, they're not left without linguistic and conceptual resources. They've they've got them because that's also part of the worship life of Israel. No, that's good. And I wonder. I mean, I wonder if there's something if, if there's something if there's if there's a correlation, and maybe there would continue to to this day. If there's a correlation between an attunement to Christ's priesthood and the second generation hmm. Christian experience, just a thought. I mean. We, if there's a historical reconstruction here, I'm also curious of a of a of a spiritual insight in that development. You know, I mean, the initial discovery that first generation of this guy's risen from the dead, he's at the right hand. This kind of a, for lack of a better term, a kind of apocalyptic, you know, uh, excitement mm-hmm. about the this event, and then with the second generation that it's handed on to, there might also be a okay. Well, if as things are moving along here. How is he continuing to be there for us as we await his return? I mean, I don't want to overplay a kind of delay of parousia business stuff. I, I don't mean that. I don't mean a heavy handed. Yeah. And more just, a, I think of even now, even to this day, you know, this, this son who's defeated death is kind of ha- has the energy of the new convert, right? And then I can see how the priest, priestly ministry of Christ might be this that it's perpetual and ongoing. He's always there interceding for us. How encouraging that could be for someone who maybe has been a part of the Christian community a long time, or it was handed on from another generation and wanting to know that Christ is there supporting us when things get tough. I don't know if, I mean, maybe I'm making too much of that correlation, but I've never thought of it that way, but that, that seems to me to be really fruitful line of inquiry to pursue. The preacher has been, up to the next passage, he's been pretty subtle about what he's worried about with these folks, but but they're they're in danger maybe of drifting away, or he's going to say they're sluggish, they're they're kind of lethargic. Yeah, this Whether, isn't the zeal of a new convert, yeah, right? That's not the vibe. That's not the vibe. A while they've been doing this a while, and yeah, to think about well, then then what picture of Christ's ministry speaks into that? Just the grind sometimes of being a follower of Christ when nothing exciting really is happening or, and then I, I think your suggestion, I think about a second generation kind of faith as well is fruitful because I, I think about what, you know, what about kids who are kind of raised just within the church and maybe don't our, our priest prays, you know, may you never need no day apart from Christ. That That's great. But like, how do you then recapture the sense or, or capture for the first time, the sense of just how amazing it is. Um, that Christ has reached down and continues to reach toward us. And in that case, it may not just be that the shift from king to priest 
is correlates. It may just be that some kind of shift in imagery correlates, right? The, the need to hear the same gospel in a fresh lens, that would also be a possibility. Just like if you grow up hearing about priests all the time, you need to hear something new. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I wouldn't want to make the correlation a strict one. Yeah. But uh, yeah, well, let us hold fast and let us draw near. These are very fitting calls for those mm -hmm. who are in the grind, as you say. Yeah. Right. If you're in the grind of the faith, whatever that might look like, there is that, hey, let's hold fast and let's draw near. Let's not just kind of be on the periphery and hold it loosely, but, but, but hold, it, hold it strong and, and draw in close. Which again, for the, the zeal of the convert, it's kind of, you know, let us hold fast kind of doesn't even ring. It's like, well, I, I know what I left. I'm in, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, draw near like I'm in, you know, like I was gone. Now I'm in. Why would I want to be on the periphery? But that the, the children of, of believers, of converts, you can see some of those things. Anyway, that, that resonates with yeah. me and That's gets us to some idea. of the application even. Yeah. yeah. I did. I want to ask about, well, I don't know. This is just an observation. You tell me how it rings, but just doubling back to the Psalm real quick, since I kind of grew up and some of our listeners may have as well kind of grew up with certain interpretive moves that had been made in the new Testament, mm -hmm. taking those for granted. And they're already up and running when we're reading the, the scriptures so-called old testament and like including things like hebrews like it's really easy when you get to exodus leviticus even earlier to be sort of seeing okay jesus priest okay you know and so it's fascinating to me to think that the stuff he is drawing now from leviticus may have actually kind of worked backwards through the canon more through the psalms you know as prophecy and it's sort of like through that, you know, you have the event of Christ, you have mm -hmm. the interpretation of the Psalter back then into, as prophetic, back yeah. into the Torah. It's almost kind of inverted from maybe the way it sometimes is presented as this kind of neat narrative. I don't know. Maybe there's nothing to say about that other than just I find it interesting that it's kind of inverted from the canonical order that we tend to Sometimes the way of teaching doesn't map onto the way of discovery. The way a thing was discovered yeah. may be a little more indirect. And I, there's a part of me that wants to almost recreate, not just reconstruct it historically as scholars, but recreate that moment, that way of discovery, even in preaching and teaching, that we can see this as, a, as an insight and not just as a kind of obvious fact. Yeah. No, I think one of the one of the things that distinguishes the earliest Christians from other Jewish readers is how much the the Torah is read in light of prophetic texts. How much the prophets are a, a lens for understanding, at least what they're a lens for getting what they're interested in in the Torah. And actually, the the, the Torah, the Pentateuch itself, is some of the most cited texts are prophetic texts within that. So, like. Moses' oh. song in Deuteronomy 32, or the promise to Abraham, which is prophetic in the sense that it says God's committed to this family as well as to all the nations eventually. And I think the only other Jewish group I know of we have evidence for, like the earliest Christians, were the, the folks that gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're convinced that they're on the cusp of God's redemption of Israel and this sort of eschatological moment where God's going to set the world right. And their teacher has been given insight into the prophets. And so, you know, can 
by the inspiration of God's Spirit, can understand how what the prophets were talking about is is coming to happen to pass right now or in the very near future. And I think for for the earliest Christians, it's it's Jesus who shows up as a prophet and and then gives his followers the key to the scriptures, which is everything. This is the end of Luke's gospel, but everything written in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms is that the Messiah would suffer and then enter into his glory. So um, there's a backwards reading through Jesus. And yeah, the prophets play a kind of outsized role. The question about how do we constitute our life as a people isn't any longer by interpreting the law of Moses. It's by understanding how everything from Moses on points to Christ. And they're the, I, I love your image of the, the Psalms, the prophets as a kind of lens through which they're looking backwards at, at Moses as well. Yeah, I mean, how to, how to keep that spirit alive in an era of great biblical illiteracy is a <laughs> sort of question that always weighs on me. But, I mean, the same goes even for, you know, their own time. Uh, there were probably a lot of people who were completely lost when they heard this sermon. Uh, <laughs> 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 and this is how they were learning it, right? By seeing it pieced together, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I hope, I, I like to imagine this congregation having some long conversations after, after this is read out. And it, you know, the, the preacher can't be there, so he's written this word of exhortation. But I imagine there's people like, hey, we need to hear that again. Or, what, do you, what in the world do you think he's talking about there? Yeah, and I can imagine every extreme in that room too, especially if it was passed around amongst congregations. You know, you you could have everything from, you know, a a lover of the scriptures saying, well, he missed this one little point from Leviticus, you know, like really wanting to debate it. And then I could see the opposite of people who are like, I always thought Leviticus was the boring part of the Torah. Now I get why it matters to us. You know, like I could see that, that experience happening, you know, like of, like that lens thing where, okay, now he just cracked open the Torah and, and particularly Leviticus as having this, th- there's something hidden there for us in a way that might've been a really exciting discovery. So yeah, well, let's take a quick break and come back and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Ross Wagner, and we're looking at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. So let's explore some sermon starters. Uh, you know, you're, you're kind of a Hebrews guy. I could imagine a uh, local church calling you up and say, hey, uh, we're going through Hebrews right now and following the lectionary, and this is the text up, and pastor's sick, and we need you to fill in. So, what, you know, boom, what would you do? You've got, a, you've got a couple, you know, a day or two to prep. What would be your angle or your focus or your theme How would you get started on a text like this as a preaching text? I actually think one of the challenges of of preaching Hebrews is that this is an ongoing sermon itself, and one thing builds on another. So how to take a part of it and make it understandable in in light of the the flow of the sermon. I think in this case, actually, with chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, it gives us a good run it up to this text because it, it looks backwards and summarizes some of the, the ground we've gained already. And it looks ahead, especially to to the idea that to understand that Jesus is this high priest who's passed through the heavens, 
we're enabled to hold fast and we're encouraged to draw near boldly to the throne of grace because the one who is there has can sympathize with our weakness, has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, and is ready to give us the mercy and grace that we need at this moment. So um, I, th- I think that 5, 1 to 10 is, is sort of providing some of the groundwork then for what will, why should I be confident? Why should I approach with boldness? Why should I take heart and hold fast? And one of the things in this sermon, in, in this section of the sermon that really impresses me is um, the focus on the, on the humanity of the Son. So he is, he is made perfect, topic for another podcast on what perfection language is doing in, in Hebrews, but, but the divine son taking on human nature uh, has to go through some experiences in order to be our priest. The, the author's really clear. There's, it's not that there's a moral failing that has to be overcome, but rather he can only be priest by being tempted in every way as we are and withstanding it by going to the cross and suffering not only death, but experiencing resurrection. So Christ, the eternal son, actually becomes, and um, just to sit for a while with the notion that um, this one that we, we worship, we acknowledge as king, is also one who's come so close to us so that he could take us by the hand and, and lead us. And so he's sympathetic. He doesn't just sort of empathize at a distance. He he understands. There's there's no low point we could hit that Jesus hasn't already been to and beyond. There's no temptation we're facing that he hasn't faced to a much greater degree because he didn't give in. We we sort of short circuit temptation by just giving in, and and Jesus knows the full depth of temptation, and he has taken his place at God's right hand in order to help us in our time of need. Oh, that's so good. I I feel like you're zeroing in on, you know, there's the focus. There's there's three Fs that I remember learning in a homiletics class years ago, right? The Mm. focus of a sermon, which is kind of the topic, the the, the main idea, and the form, which is the structure, right? Three points in a poem or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Or narrative form or whatever. And then the function, right? What's the function of the... What's it trying to accomplish in the people? And more and more as I've grown older, like I tended to, and again, I'm a brainy type, head type person, right? <laughs> so I, I tended to think like, oh, that focus, that, that, that main idea, that's got to be biblical. Of course, that does need to be biblical, right? But then sometimes I would accidentally like the form and or function of my sermons would end up kind of contradicting the <laughs> mm. the spirit of the text. And more and more, I, I, I've been working backwards. Like, what's the function of this text? What is what is the author preacher here yeah. trying to accomplish with his people? And then ask myself, okay, what's the best way that I can do that in my own teaching and preaching, mm-hmm. um, which may or may not be expositionally going through the text. It may or may not be how much like sort of like close reading comes out in the sermon. That's a highly contextual question of what's going to work and, yeah. and, and, and click. And it occurs to me that, I mean, I'm hearing you highlight the function of this sermon as a whole, this book, but also even this passage itself. It's not just sort of primarily intending to kind of exposit this concept of Christ as priest, although he's doing that. That it's this function that is to 
um, assure them, to give them confidence, to give them that confidence to draw near, to hold fast, to stay close, to press on. And, and that, and that that's the significance for us of the, yeah. the, the dual aspects of Christ's identity and sort of, and both sides are kind of near, right? If he's just one of us, then he, he can't really rescue us. Right? He's yeah. just in the mess with us. But if he's not also one of us, then he doesn't really get it when we screw up. And he, you know, <laughs> so this kind of combination really draws him into our experience so we can, we can trust him. And I mean, that line from verse two, I mean, that, I just, that line just connected with me so much today, even though it's used as a general description. I think this one also applies to Jesus, given what he says in seven through 10, you know, that he can deal gently mm-hmm. with the ignorant and the wayward because he himself is beset with weakness. I mean, maybe, maybe beset with weakness isn't accurate of the son. I, I don't know, but it, um, since he doesn't need what verse three says, which is because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins. Mm-hmm. I think later in the book, he's going to say that Jesus didn't have to do that part, but surely Jesus is gentle with us. I mean, on account yeah. of our both ignorance and our error. I think um, a, a lot of commentators have suggested that there's an implicit comparison uh, all throughout this passage. Um, again, to, to just borrow Harold Attridge's um, outline, he sees there there to be a kind of threefold comparison of the Aaronic high priest with Jesus, the high priest. So um, there's the, the job that they're called to do, and that's verse one for the Aaronic priest. It's it's done in inverse order, so it's verses five to six for Jesus. There's there's the character of the priest, verses two to three for the the one in Aaron's line, verses seven to eight for Christ, and then there's the the heavenly divine calling or commissioning of the priest, verse four for the Aaronic high priest, verses five to six for Jesus. There's so there's an implicit comparison. What was that so, third one again? I just missed it. So yeah, it was the job, probably, the character. I jumbled it myself. No, it was too. fine. It was great. The job, I mean, the character, and what was the third? Yeah, and then the, the divine authorization. Okay, right, yeah. right. The calling. Sorry, yeah, it just sounds like three points in a poem to me. That's why I'm writing it down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so Go ahead, there seems ahead. to be an implicit contrast, though, with um, chapter 4, verse 15. He this high priest is not one unable to sympathize, which is a way of saying he sympathizes with us. Um, the earthly high priest in verse two in chapter five, um, he shares, he can deal gently. He can moderate his emotion. There's, there's an implicit um, suggestion that Jesus goes even further than, than the most empathetic high priest. Jesus has experienced at, at a, at a deep level. Um, and, and similarly, um, every high priest is called to, to offer sacrifices, verse 1. But verses 9 to 10, Jesus, the high priest, has become the cause of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So he's not just offering, uh, you know, a, a, a repeated repair. Hence the plural, the plural in the singular is the contrast then, right? Yeah. And, okay. and so chapter 9 and 10 are going to develop this, you know, the the this the sacrifices under the Levitical covenant are continual because people continue to sin and it doesn't get to the heart of the person. Whereas Jesus once for all sacrifice cleanses the conscience as well as, as the outer person. Um, And then you also get a comparison that'll be developed later 
nobody just volunteers for this role. So God appoints Aaron, high priest, and then Aaron's descendants. But God swears an oath to the son. You are a priest forever. So he's even got a better calling and divine authorization. So he's similar, but but better, as, as the pattern has been so often in this letter. Hey, look how great the covenant with Moses is. How much better is that which has come through Christ? And so, you know, he's a priest forever because he doesn't die. Whereas those priests on earth, they're weak like we are, and, and they die, and they have to be replaced. Yeah, and so then Melchizedek becomes kind of a shorthand for this kind of more advanced form of especially the maybe the job and the character uh-huh. but especially the divine authorization perhaps but maybe all three in a way like yeah. Melchizedek ends up being this kind of foreshadowing of um, if that's the right term a foreshadowing of this superior priesthood this is this probably step on another guest's toes but um, in chapter 7 verse 3 we'd expect to say well you know what Melchizedek foreshadows Jesus but the author actually says Melchizedek looks a lot like the son of God <laughs> So Jesus is yeah. the prototype for Melchizedek because he's the one who has ah. the indestructible life. So it's not. I think it's not as if there's a sort of container. Hey, here's Melchizedek and, and his priesthood. Rather, Melchizedek is a picture of something, but the reality is Christ. Now that's a helpful correction, and it helps with this passage to kind of say, like, I mean, to me, if I were to preach on this, I would want to avoid the temptation of going down a Melchizedekian rabbit hole. Like I would want to focus on some version of that triplet that you presented. Yeah. Really just highlight Christ's priestly ministry. What's so great about it um, in contrast to what came before. And perhaps also in contrast to other priestly or quasi priestly things that we rely on, whether religious or non-religious, you know, the authorities that we cling to, to give us confidence in tough times and, highlight Christ in that. And and just, again, just find a way to have Melchizedek be this kind of fun name, this shorthand for yeah, that, yeah, yeah. rather well, than you know, getting into the weeds of that. you know. Especially if I'm the guest preacher just being invited in for one Sunday, I'd be like, yeah, ask your pastor about Melchizedek. <laughs> <laughs> she can explain it to you. <laughs> nice. Well done. Well played. Well played. No, I think you're exactly right, though. I, I mean, throughout Hebrews, there's this pattern of, you know, let's look at the tabernacle in in Exodus and Leviticus, and then let's talk about the heavenly tabernacle. But it turns out that actually the model of the heavenly, heavenly is more real. And so every human priest gives us a picture of what Jesus the priest is like, but for the author of Hebrews, Jesus is the real priest. And every priest's ministry is, is in some sense dependent on Christ's prior priestly ministry. Yeah, so that makes me want to ask a I mean, just a quick little exegetical aside, but it it relates to what I think I'd want to communicate to a flock. In verse 6, when he quotes Psalm 110.4, at least in the thrust of how the text is being used in this and the chapters following, is the order of Melchizedek, is it linked? Is its most important meaning that word forever? You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? Or... I mean, I, I, I'm sensing as we talk that that's the big payoff. That's what makes his priestly ministry of a special order is yeah. that it's perpetual and perfect and once for yes. all and continual, but continual in this different way than the others were. Not continual because something was lacking, but because it's 
perpetually effective. I don't know. Is that, I mean, I'm, it's suddenly occurring to me like forever, like after the order of Melchizedek's almost, uh, uh, appositional to forever, forever, you know, Melchizedek yeah, style, I, right? That's the thing exactly that really right. matters. I think you're exactly right. Okay. You know, th- there is a priesthood on earth and it's after the pattern of Aaron. It's, it's in the line of Aaron. So, but scripture talks about another priesthood. And I think here, it's not that Melchizedek is so important in the way that Aaron is important, that, but it's the, it's the foreverness. So in chapter 7, verse 15, I think it kind of closes the loop with this very first quotation. Another priest, Jesus, has arisen in the likeness of Melchizedek. But this one, Jesus, has become priest not because of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent from a figure. It's not Melchizedek's heir but by the power of an indestructible life. And it's that wow. It's that indestructible life of Jesus that makes him the high priest for and so I think you're right, that forever is more important than Melchizedek. <laughs> and man, far. when I think about the kinds of whether religious or secular priests, I mean I think in a sermon I'd want to explore that. What are the things we cling to? It's not even if they're morally good, they just they don't last forever. All the things that we cling to, all the yeah. people that we look up to, whose approval we need, whether it's parents, whether it's yeah. friends, whether it's a boss, whether it's an institution, a nation, all of it, it all comes and goes. Like only he has this indestructible life. And so that's why we can have this boldness to continue to cling and come to God through him and through him alone, because everything else at some point is capable of disappointing us in a way that he isn't. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, you know, Hebrews will say a little later, he, he always lives. He lives forever to make intercession for us because he's the priest. He's pleading for us. He's cheering for us. He's opening the way for us and he'll never be replaced. <laughs> yeah. So then when I go back to the, the job, the character, the divine authority, Right, the kind of common theme that makes his different in all three is the foreverness, right? Right. The job he does it once for all rather than over and over. The character, his his mercy does is everlasting, right? It's not for a time, but persists. And the divine authority, it's it's from before all time and to all time. It has yeah. this divine oath that locks it in. Yeah. Not just for a generation. Yeah. Um well, that encourages me. I hope it encourages our listeners. I hope there's possibilities there of finding ways to encourage others uh, as we bear this word among our people. So thanks so much, Ross, for taking time. Thanks appreciate it a ton. Conversation was a lot of fun. Oh, good. I'm glad it was. Well, thanks to all our listeners. We appreciate you so much. Thanks to Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing this without you all. Uh, thanks to Tom for donating the theme music. Thanks uh, especially to our uh, patron saints who support the show. If you want to support the show and get some extra content, go to patreon.com slash fresh text. And you can find ways to do that there. And with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye.